The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. Tonight's program is very, very special to me. I don't often get starstruck. In fact, I never get starstruck. But I'm kind of starstruck about uh, tonight's guest. We've got Dr. Sarah Wecht joining us in just a little bit. And if you've watched any true crime programs, you know, forensic files, cold case files, or you've seen documentaries about the Jean Benet Ramsey case or the Branch Davidian uh, Waco fire and um, and tragedy that, that killed so many there, or uh, the O.J. Simpson case, or the Kurt Cobain, quote-unquote, suicide. If you've watched documentaries about any of the high-profile cases that involved death and under suspicious circumstances, you probably have seen and are very familiar with Dr. Cyril Weck's work. And we're going to be talking about that tonight. He's written a new book called "Life and The Life and Deaths of Cyril Wecht, Memoirs of America's Most Controversial Forensic Pathologist. This is going to be a fascinating discussion. There's no way we're going to get to everything uh, in the course of the 60 minutes or so that we've got to talk with uh, Dr. Wecht tonight. But we're going to do our best. And his book does such a great job of not just telling his story, but telling the story of the people that he affected and the cases that he worked on. When I look through that list, it's basically a who's who of controversial cases throughout the latter part of the 20th century into the early part of the 21st. This is this again, this is going to be an amazing discussion. And I'm so honored to be uh, a host of a show that can actually uh, interview someone with the credentials and the experience of Dr. Cyril Weck. So you'll have to forgive me for uh, being a bit of a fanboy here, but I, um, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, I do want to offer a word of caution. I've noticed that uh, there has been a tremendous number of fraudulent scam phishing emails that I've been getting. I don't know if everybody is getting these, but I just want to just say something that should be obvious to everyone. The If you get an email from the IRS says, click here and fill out this form and put all your information in here because we want to talk to you, don't do it. If you get an email from a credit card company that says, hey, uh, we need to check something on your account, please enter your information here, don't do it. Um, there are a lot of people using very clever tactics, and they disguise themselves as FedEx. They disguise themselves as DHL Express or whatever that delivery company is. They disguise themselves as the Eternal Revenue Service. I don't know how they get away with it. I think they don't ultimately get away with it for long. But when they send out millions of emails and hope, you know, 100 people respond and give them all this information, and then they steal either their bank accounts or their tax return money or whatever it happens to be, uh, you know, then they just uh, uproot and they start another scam. So I just, again, it should be pretty obvious, but... If you get an email asking you to fill out anything, don't do it. It will not. If if a company truly has uh, something they need to talk to you about, they're not going to do it through an email. Uh, if you suspect it might le- be legitimate, let's say you've got a Citibank credit card and you get a Citibank email and you think it's legitimate, go to your credit card, call the number on the back of the card. Don't don't reply to the email. So that's my advice for tonight. Um, and it, and it's and it's minuscule compared to what we're about to. Uh, 
the conversation we're about to undergo here with uh, Dr. Sarah Weck. Again, I'm I'm really excited about this. So having said that, and given the fact that we don't have a lot of time with Dr. Weck tonight, I'm going to go to break, get Dr. Weck on with us, and begin this conversation. I'm looking forward to it. As I said a hundred times, and I'll say it one more. This is going to be a great discussion tonight on Beyond Reality. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Also subscribe to the Twitch channel and subscribe to the podcast. Those are all great ways to enjoy the program as well. We are very honored and humbled to have an amazing guest for you tonight. Dr. Sarah Wecht is an internationally acclaimed forensic pathologist, attorney, and medical legal consultant who's become famous for consulting on deaths that have are associated with a high media profile. His expertise has been called upon in cases involving JFK, Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., Elvis Presley, Jean Benet Ramsey, Lacey Peterson, Kurt Cobain, the O.J. Simpson slayings, and the Waco Branch Davidian fire, among many, many others. Dr. Weck, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It is real honor. Mm. It is a real honor well, to have you on. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Jay. It's a pleasure to be with you. The, you know, I have to also thank you from a personal level. I have enjoyed countless hours of uh, appearances that you've made on various television programs and documentary films, whatever it happens to be, about some of these cases which really have defined maybe in some ways the legal system for the past 40 or 50 years. Um, So from a personal standpoint, you've entertained me uh, for hours, but I also have to say the fact that you took the time to write not write an, uh, a book not only about your you know your, your personal story but the stories of all the people that you've affected and the cases that you've been involved with that is a real treasure and thank you for doing that. Well, I appreciate that. A very gracious of you uh, to make that comment. Yeah, I uh, decided uh, uh, that I would do this. Actually, my co-author Jeff Seawald had come to interview me for a local Pittsburgh magazine and. Uh, after a while, um, I think our second meeting, he came up with the idea, and uh, then we began to work together. I decided that now was the time uh, uh, to put together some of these experiences in my life and uh, to include uh, summaries of uh, many of the cases that I have been involved uh, with over the years. Well, we're going to be challenged to uh, cover uh, even a fraction of what you've written about in the book. And again, I'll remind folks that the title of the book is The Life and Deaths of Cyril Wecht, Memoirs of America's Most Controversial Forensic Pathologist. Cyril, what makes you controversial? <laughs> well, you know, that was the publisher's uh, title. And at first I was a little shocked, surprised, uh, but I've come to uh, appreciate the title. I, I guess the answer to your question and the thought that came to their mind was that the many cases in which I've been involved, which you just listed, are cases in which other people, other experts, government officials, had expressed uh, other ideas. Um, and uh, my involvement in these cases uh, has led to a refreshing new look uh, 
allowing people to understand that things are not always the way they are presented by local or state or federal authorities uh, and uh, uh, to to explain what the challenges are in the field of forensic pathology that allow different opinions uh, to uh, be uh, expressed following analysis of a case. But you're so much more than just a forensic pathologist. I mean, just to, to kind of quickly uh, hit some highlights of your resume, you're, you're an attorney, you're, you've held political office, you are a bit of a political activist, you, you have looked at the justice system and found injustices and tried to correct them, you're an author, you're a television personality, clearly you're a radio personality. Do you think all of that comes together to help you be a bit of a warrior for people who need a warrior? Uh, well, uh, yes, I haven't, uh, you know, set out with uh, that in mind, but uh, I'm happy to accept uh, that characterization. I think that uh, in these cases, I have been brave enough uh, and tenacious and persevering uh, and uh, courageous, if I may say that, uh, to go against authorities. And as you know from the book, I've paid the price, too. Uh, I've uh, had two um, different uh, charges brought against me at different times, and I had to go to trial. And uh, fortunately, I had wonderful attorneys, and uh, uh, the false cases brought against me were exposed, and I was completely exonerated in both. But uh, those experiences, uh, indeed, on top of everything that I have uh, witnessed in dealing with other cases, uh, led me uh, to understand more f- more fully the way in which the criminal justice system can be subverted, perverted, uh, and utilized for malevolent purposes by prosecutors and law enforcement officers and other government officials for their own purposes. Well, and you said, if you may be so bold to call yourself courageous, I think that it's probably an understatement. And uh, you have paid the price. And do you think that that um, that people such as yourself who uh, take on a little bit of courage and try to buck the system and point out wrongs and try to right them, do you think that you get a big target on your back when you do that, whether it's you or anybody else trying to do something similar? Oh, yes, you certainly do. You get a very big target. In fact... Uh, the first charges brought against me in the late 1970s when I was coroner were brought by the district attorney instigated by the sheriff, both of whom were extremely unhappy about the fact that I was holding public inquest as coroner of Allegheny County in every police-related death. They did not like that at all. That had not been done before. So any case, uh, whether it was pursuit, apprehension, arrest, incarceration, uh, we had a public inquest presided over by one of the more prominent attorneys in our county, sometimes retired judges, and once by a Pennsylvania Supreme Court justice, recently retired. And um, they did not like that. And they came up with these uh, cockamamie charges. I had to deal with them, however. I was smart enough to get myself an excellent attorney, Stanley Prizer, now deceased, one of the top trial attorneys in America at that time. And uh, he worked feverishly, incredibly, and uh, you know, it cost a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort, tremendous strain on me, my sure. practice, my family. But, uh, you know, then I, I prevailed. And then the second time around, um, involving the U.S. attorney who was interested in getting appointed to the Third Circuit, 
she had already passed uh, a local federal appointment, and she was looking for the Third Circuit. And that was at a time, too, you may recall, when uh, this uh, U.S. Attorney General um, Ash, Ashford and followed by U.S. Attorney General Gonzalez uh, had made it a point to go out for officials, almost always Democrats, uh, and, you know, and get a scalp. It was scalp hunting days. Yeah. In fact, a couple of Republican Republican U.S. attorneys paid a price for refusing to go along with that kind of scandalous activity. Uh, they brought in 84 count felony counts indictment against me, 84 felony counts. Uh, and that's all they wanted was a scalp. They told my attorney shortly afterwards that if I pled guilty to one charge, mm-hmm. then uh, I could walk away. There would be no imprisonment, maybe some fine. And I told them to go screw themselves. Good for you. And um, um, after two years of pretrial preparation, um, they dropped 43 charges before the trial began. And then we went to trial. I had excellent attorneys from K&L Gates here in Pittsburgh, Jerry McDivitt and Mark Rush, and they and their extensive staff staff did a fantastic job. Um, and the, the jury came in without our putting on any defense witnesses because several of the defense witnesses they had called proved to be extremely helpful to me. Uh, so in any event, the hung jury, the government... Uh, said they would appeal uh, and uh, went up to the Third Circuit. We pled double jeopardy, not thinking we had a chance. Mm -hmm. But amazingly, three of those uh, top-level federal judges, all Republican appointees, came forward uh, with their opinion and said that the case had to be handled uh, by a a new judge, uh, their quote, with fresh eyes of an unbiased nature. And uh, we got such a federal judge, he listened to the arguments, and then uh, he wrote a blistering 55-page report. Uh, meanwhile, government had dropped 27 uh, of the uh, 41 charges, and uh, then the remaining 14 charges were booted out by the judge. So there you are. Uh, from the beginning to the end was four years. cost me over $4 million, and K&L, K&L Gates graciously forgave me another $6.2 million. So actually, the total cost was well over $10 million, wow. and uh, I was forgiven $6.2 million, but I spent over $4 million in defending myself. Uh, but I had wonderful attorneys once again, and uh, the truth came out, and then you know, I became a hero. I even had editorials from both newspapers, uh, even from the U.S. Senator Arlen Specter, uh, a Republican at that time. I've been a Democrat. Uh, and um, uh, <laughs> So, uh, you know, that, that's the way it worked out. But it's a heavy price to pay, uh, indeed. And uh, I, I was fortunate to have a, you know, a strong family, my wife and my kids uh, and, uh, you know, friends. And, uh, and, you know, you do what you have to do. Yeah. During that time, during that trial, J.V., I, I continued to function wow. as a forensic pathologist and medical legal consultant. Court would end at 4 o'clock. I would go and do autopsies in these four or five adjacent counties in southwestern Pennsylvania, for which I continue to do autopsies. And I would go. Uh, court that was not held on Friday, so I had Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. During one of those weekends, I flew down to the Bahamas to do a second autopsy on Daniel Smith. I remember I had to get permission because they had my passport. <laughs> so <laughs> during during all that time, you want to hear a story, you wouldn't believe it if you had in a fiction book, you'd say absurd. 
one day in court. I finished uh, on the fifth floor of the federal building downtown Pittsburgh at five p at, at four p.m. Four p.m. Went downstairs two flights to another courtroom, another federal judge, and testified on a case in which uh, the Pennsylvania government and Pennsylvania state troopers were being sued uh, for having shot a 14-year-old African-American boy who was uh, attempting to flee, climbing over a fence. Uh, so there I was uh, from a courtroom as a defendant to a courtroom <laughs> in the same building uh, as an expert witness. How do you like that? <laughs> wow. Well, you are certainly indefatigable. I mean, you the amount of energy that you have is is staggering. But I want to go back to this original uh, tussle you had with, with uh, a, a case that was brought against you. You said that you were holding, what, a public uh, inquiry or public inquest on uh, uh, all yeah. cases you know, involving the, the police? Because yeah. that seems yes. very appropriate right now. Yeah, J.V., yes, thank you. I would like to say, you know, I'm going to say it not egotistically, but proudly, that I was uh, 50 years ahead of my time. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the power of, of coroners, which started back in the 12th century in very old England, um, continued into this country. And I used that power of public inquest, the ability to subpoena witnesses, including the police officers who were involved in these matters. And they were made to testify. And the testimony came out. And then rulings would be made um, in a fair way by, as I say, um, sometimes there was a coroner's jury. Other times uh, it was just presided over by a, a prominent attorney, a former judge or whatever. We did not have the power to indict. We could only recommend to the district attorney. They did not like that. And uh, so it reached a point, uh, finally, of uh, extreme animus. And uh, they conspired and brought these charges against me. So let's back up a little bit. For people who might not understand exactly what a coroner does or what a forensic pathologist does, you're a little bit doctor, a little bit uh, investigator, a little bit law enforcement. It kind of all comes together. But explain what the real role of those those positions is. Okay. A forensic pathologist, by definition, is a doctor with an MD or a DO degree uh, who has then spent five or six years in pathology training after graduation from medical school, including one or two years in forensic pathology at an accredited office. And that is what I did. In the meantime, during that same five-year period, I managed to fit in three years of law school and two years as a captain in the United States Air Force at Maxwell Air Force Base Hospital in Montgomery, Alabama. So I did uh, 10 years in five and they came out, and I practiced. Um, what a forensic pathologist does is that he, she works in a coroner or medical examiner's office. Um, uh, there are different jurisdictions. Most large metropolitan areas have a med- medical examiner system, and uh, many other uh, areas, uh, in, uh, in, including in states which don't have a state ME system, like Pennsylvania, where the ME system is to be found in four or five of the larger counties, the remaining 63 counties, for example, in Pennsylvania, and this is true in California, like uh, too, then they're run by coroners who are generally elected. In any event, uh, it doesn't make any difference which system, uh, what makes a difference is how the system is run. The forensic pathologist is the medical specialist working in that office who does the autopsies. And makes determinations as to the cause of death, and then puts things, puts things together if, uh, 
reports from law enforcement agencies, toxicological analyses that come back after specimens are submitted to them, and then ultimately the medical examiner or the coroner makes an official ruling as to the manner of death. In addition to cause of death, uh, then you see coroners and medical examiners have to deal with manner of death. Doctors and hospitals that sign out uh, deaths, uh, there is no such thing on a death certificate as manner of death. On coroner medical examiner death certificates, there are five manners of death from which to choose. In decreasing order of uh, frequency of occurrence, you've got natural, accident, suicide, homicide, and undetermined. Sometimes you may not be certain, and you leave it as undetermined or pending, um, waiting for further examination, uh, further reports, further studies, and so on. So those are important, and manner of death is frequently uh, the the <clears throat> issue. Uh, I can think in so many cases that I've testified in, it wasn't an issue as to the cause of death. Gunshot wounds are gunshot wounds. Right. Uh, stab wounds are stab wounds. Uh, motor vehicle accident, blunt force trauma, uh, they are what they are. But what was the manner of death? Was it an accident? Was it suicide? Was it homicide? I did an autopsy on a 17-year-old boy, tragically, a week ago. Everybody said they thought it was suicide. I reviewed everything with the state trooper and, and the local coroner, and, uh, and based upon various things, his clothing, his attire, what he looked like guns, what he was working on, position of the gun, and so on, and a, a determination was made that it was a an accident. Uh, uh, you know, so so there you are. Uh, the and, and, and then other other cases, it's not the cause or the manner, but it's who did it um, and how was it accomplished. John Kennedy assassination, Robert Kennedy assassination, Martin Luther King assassination, we have three cases of death due to gunshot wounds, no question about it. In each case, fatal injuries to the heads. And the question is, who did it? Uh, what do the facts? You see, the forensic pathologist then acting further, as I do, as a medical legal consultant and analyst, then you take other things into consideration. All of the background information, all of the reports uh, from the investigative agencies, governmental and private, and you study the case, and then you come up with, uh, with you know, your thoughts, which are then expressed in reports, uh, depositions, trial testimony, and so on. And that's what I've been doing and continue to do as a medical consultant. So I do autopsies. Up until two and a half years ago, I was doing more than 500 all by myself every year. Wow. Uh, two and a half years ago, I took on board a very good um, colleague, uh, Dr. Jennifer Hammond, says she's excellent. And so now we split it in half. I'm still doing about 270 autopsies myself, and I'm doing consultations for attorneys, uh, cases from all over the country. Three weeks ago, I dealt with a homicide case from Israel. So <laughs> that's wow. the way it goes. So in the normal course of a coroner's office, uh, how many, is there a percentage, and I know it probably varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but how many uh, j- deaths that come through that you have to examine as a coroner um, would be uh, what you would consider to be you know, non-suspicious or unsuspicious, natural occurring versus the ones where you have to take a, a, a more detailed and thorough look at because of a possible foul play incident. Yes. Well, <clears throat> you're quite right that uh, 
these things vary from one jurisdiction to another in terms of the reporting and the decisions made by the office as to whether or not to make it a coroner or ME case. Right. Then once that decision is made, then uh, the, the body is brought in, and then a decision is made as to whether to perform a complete autopsy or just do what some offices do sometimes, an external examination, draw some blood and other body fluids for testing, and let it go at that. What percentage? I would say that um, so far as controversial cases, uh, like the ones you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, those are a relatively small percentage of cases. But when they involve a major figure, a celebrity, uh, or a case for some other reason, which uh, seems to uh, gather the public's great interest, like John Benet Ramsey, no celebrity or anything special. Uh, I mean, other children um, die all the time. Uh, from one kind of abuse, or in one way or another, and uh, they don't—they don't, you know, make any news outside of their local jurisdiction. Uh, who knows? But uh, the, uh, you know, I would say the percentage is relatively small, but they become highlighted right. now in the world of fiction as well in as in the world of reality. And of course, in practice, your your professional career has seen its share of these controversial cases, which we're going to get, get to after the break. But before we go to break, <laughs> before we go to break, I just want to point out something else that I found fascinating about your story. You talk about your childhood and you talk about the fact that, uh, you know, your parents were of modest means. You recognized early on that, um, you know, there wasn't going to be, I think the way you put it, a big inheritance or any of this for you. And you had to make something of yourself and you set out on a path to do that. And I think that's such a powerful message. And I think that's often overlooked in the face of challenges like that. We often find something within ourselves that allows us to excel. And you're to be commended for that, but you're also, uh, I, I want to applaud the fact that you're telling that part of your story because I think it's important. Well, I, I thank you. But the credit goes to my parents, especially my father. <laughs> he told me <laughs> from the day I was one year old that I was going to be a doctor. My father was an immigrant <laughs> from Lithuania. My mother an immigrant from Kiev, Russia. Um, they met and married over in this country. And my father said, you know, I'm Jewish. Uh, and uh, he was very much aware of anti-Semitism. And he felt that the best thing, uh, as so many Jewish immigrants did feel about their kids, become a doctor, become a doctor. That was number one. If you can't become a doctor, be a lawyer. <laughs> If you can't become a lawyer, be a CPA or an engineer, but be a professional and to some extent be your own boss. So my parents get the credit. I'll take credit for working hard and doing all of those things and making a decision. I will take full credit for making the decision to go to law school and to combine law and medicine and to become a medical legal consultant. I'll take credit. For the, for the law part of it. <laughs> well, you, you deserve credit for it all. We're talking tonight with Dr. Sarah Wecht. He is, of course, an internationally acclaimed forensic pathologist. We're talking about his new book, The Life and Deaths of Sarah Wecht, but he's got many, many others, all very interesting, including Who Killed John Benet Ramsey and A Question of Murder, Into Evidence, Truth, Lies, and Unresolved Mysteries in the Murder of JFK, and many, many others. And you can get more information about all of his work by going to his website. It's CyrilWecht.com. Um, speaking of 
controversial and mysterious cases, Dr. Wecht. You kind of got your introduction to th- that part of your work through probably one of the biggest cases. It wasn't at the RFK assassination that kind of brought you into this type of work? Actually, it was the JFK assassination that got involved with that case first. I gave my paper at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, and then I was um, consulted by Jim Garrison, district attorney in New Orleans, in the Clay Shaw trial, testified before federal judge Charles Halleck in an attempt to gain access to the autopsy materials, which uh, were designed to be sequestered uh, for 75 years. Uh, uh, Parenthetically, let me say tens of thousands of those pages still remain, still remain uh, uh, sequestered at this point in time. So anyway... I, uh, with great, uh, great uh, unhappiness, said I could not testify because I hadn't seen the autopsy materials. Finally, in 1972, under a special clause, I got in. I was the first non-government appointed, non-government sponsored forensic pathologist given access to the autopsy materials at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. And on August 24, 1972, page one, New York Times, uh, article by Fred Graham, the top reporter at that time, uh, President's Brain Missing. I pointed out which other people knew, and incredibly, uh, immorally, unethically, unprofessionally, um, disgustingly, disappointing, and cowardly, uh, never, never mentioned, uh, including some top-notch experts in my field. So I pointed out the president's brain uh, was not dissected after it had been fixed in formalin to harden two weeks after the autopsy. Um, and that it it was missing. It remains missing, as you and I speak here this evening. And then in 1975, I testified again under oath before the Rockefeller Commission for about five hours. And then in 1978, I testified before the House of Representatives, House Select Committee on Assassinations, which had been established the year before to reinvestigate JFK and um, Martin Luther King assassinations. Um, and then I've remained active. I'm chairman of a national organization, Committee Against Political Assassinations, which holds uh, programs every year and uh, continues to look into these matters. Robert F. Kennedy, I was consulted by my long friend, colleague, and good friend, Dr. Tom Noguchi, who was the chief medical examiner of Los Angeles. Uh, I remember Tom calling me at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I said, oh, my God, Tom, once again, has forgotten the three-hour time difference between L.A. and Pittsburgh. He's calling to tell me that Robert Kennedy had been shot. He did not need any advice on how to do an autopsy, but he knew that I had spoken out uh, strongly against the government having illegally spirited the body of the president out of Parkland Hospital in Dallas, and Tom wanted to get my advice on how he could prevent that from happening with Senator Robert Kennedy. I gave him some good advice, which he uh, did undertake. Uh, He proactively invited three military forensic apologists to attend as observers, uh, and so on. In any event, then I went out there to the Ambassador Hotel and uh, walked through and reconstructed everything with Dr. Noguchi. Uh, and speaking of Robert Kennedy, to show you about differences of opinion, um, um, the world believes what's the problem. Uh, uh, the background to remind everybody and refresh new people. Um, Robert Kennedy had just won the um, primary, Democratic primary in California. Uh, for president, in which tantamount to getting the nomination, right. they did not want. They could not take him out through the ballroom. Thousands of admirers and devotees uh, would rip his clothing and never let him out of there. So they said, "Come on, we're going to go back out through the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel and get him out of here." So let me ask you, JV, what is your recollection? What was the distance um, 
from Sirhan Sirhan's gun, who was there firing a gun, no question about that, in that kitchen area, Kennedy walking toward him, and Sirhan steps forward and shoots. What do you believe you recall? What would you estimate the distance uh, of that shooting to have, to have been? Oh, wow. Um, wait, wait, just, just, just your thought. What do you, what do you think? 20 feet? <laughs> 20 feet? Okay. And I've been doing this with tens of thousands, tens of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. I love it. 20 feet, 10 feet, 8 feet, 6 feet, 4 feet. The shot, and listen to this carefully, uh, which killed Senator Robert Kennedy, entering just above and behind the right ear, was fired from a distance of one to one and a half inches away from his head with a slightly forward trajectory. Sarhan Sarhan was never, never that close and certainly never behind the senator. Wow. And this is this is not Cyril Wex's subjective interpretation. This is the official autopsy report. Look it up. It's available. Signed off by Dr. Ngozi, uh, some members of his staff, some USC professors, the three military forensic pathologists uh, that I had suggested Tom invite, and three civilian forensic pathologists, uh, I, I being one of them, all, all of us signed off unanimously, unequivocally, unhesitatingly, and those tests were confirmed by criminalistic study shooting the same kind of gun uh, against the skin, uh, cadavers, and the white paper, which is the way you do those tests, one to one and a half inches. Um, how could that have been? you got to be asking yourself. Yeah. Because it never, never came out, J.V., and the court never came out. And here now we get back into the area of criminal justice and the games that can be played. The prosecution obviously never wanted to get into that. So Dr. Noguchi was never asked on direct testimony at the trial of Sirhan Sirhan. What was the distance, Dr. Noguchi, from which that shot was fired? And the defense, uh, which was headed up by an experienced criminal defense attorney, Grant Cooper by name, never asked Dr. Noguchi, never asked Dr. Noguchi what was the distance from which that shot was fired. It was a cover-up. Was that intentional um, by the defense attorney not to ask that question? Yeah, well, uh, he was being investigated himself by the uh, government for some matters unrelated and so on. Um, so, you know, so well, I give you these are hard, hard facts. Yeah. Uh, in the JFK assassination, it's been demonstrated unequivocally through uh, neuropathological, pathological, neurological, radiological, um, photographic, and acoustic studies that uh, there were two shooters, one uh, grassy knoll behind the picket fence and one from the rear. There's no question about it, no question at all, which is why, of course, the brain was never dissected because it would have shown uh, two different hemorrhagic tracts and would have shown conclusively at that time that there were two shooters. So they handled it, they covered it up from beginning to end. They took the body of the president out of Dallas uh, illegally. The autopsy should have been done and would have been done by a competent uh, forensic pathologist, medical examiner, name was Earl Rose. We had met back in the Air Force. I knew him, and they took the body uh, to Washington, D.C., and the autopsy was done at Bethesda Naval Station by two career naval pathologists. Yeah. Listen to this. Listen to this carefully, J.P. Mm. Uh, uh, President Kennedy, multiple gunshot wounds. you got to determine which is entrance, which is exit. Right. you got to determine angle, range, trajectory, sequence, and then you got to correlate those wounds with the wounds of Governor Connolly, who was seated directly in front of him. That is an extremely formidable task that two or three forensic pathologists of great experience would sweat over. So these two guys uh, were called in, Humes and Boswell, who had never, 
done a single gunshot wound autopsy wow. in their entire careers. Wow. Never had done a single gun. Isn't that disgusting to you as an American citizen? I don't care what anybody's politics or beliefs yeah. are. As an American citizen, I toss this challenge out to people every time I speak. I'll give you a, a trip free in the Caribbean island resort of your choice if you find one country where the president, prime minister, king, other major official uh, has been assassinated, where the autopsy was not done by the Medical Legal Institute, the top French pathologist in that particular country. Not one. Right. But here in this great country of ours. And people don't know this. Uh, you know, so, so those people, and they are a minority, and have always been a minority, um, who have bought the Warren Commission report, and they should know the evidentiary burden that they begin with that they are stuck with, <laughs> that the autopsy, they would be ripped apart. And the missing brain, uh, that would not have been tolerated. In many courts, um, it's very likely that uh, that would have been considered evidence of a serious nature. And the legal doctrine on that is called spoliation, the word spoil, uh, spoliation of evidence, which would have led properly to the case being thrown out because the defense could not present its defense uh, for Oswald in a, a full, uh, unfettered fashion without having had the brain examined. So, you know, that's the way it works. And I just, and want, I was, I just want to... Sorry, no, no, it's okay. I just want to make something uh, clear here. Uh, when we talk about the missing brain, and that's something that, you know, we've talked about on this program a lot. We've had a lot of folks on talking about the JFK assassination. Um, oh. But when we talk about that, I don't think everybody understands the importance of that the fact that it wasn't there and it wasn't able to be dissected tells us what dr wecht well when you when you have a brain uh, that requires special study and that would be the case of a brain that's been damaged uh, by gunshots uh, the brain is a very very viscous uh, thick liquid uh, perhaps as much as it is a solid you can't examine it in a fresh state because it will fall apart literally fall apart. You place it in formalin, which is the fixative solution that permits tissues to harden. It is in hospitals when specimens come down uh, from the OR um, and they require some preservation. So the brain was submitted for, for formalin fixation properly for two weeks. And then, and this is in the record. Go and look on December 7th. The pathologist went back and then in the report it says, Serial, which means uh, parallel sections, serial sections of the brain are not made in order to preserve the specimen. Preserve the specimen? For whom? For Jackie Kennedy's mantelpiece? <laughs> For her children and grandchildren? Right. Unbelievable. Right. Well, then some people say, well, the family took the brain and they buried it. Well, no, if they took the brain and buried it, they would have simply said that that would have been the case. You referred to my political career. I was chairman of the Democratic Party, ran for the U.S. Senate back in the 70s when I was chairman. We would invite a major political figure to address our huge rally that we had once a year, and uh, we invited Senator Ted Kennedy. It was in the late 70s. I picked him up at the airport, sat with him in the limousine, uh, sat next to him for three hours at the banquet, drove him back to the airport in the limousine, just he and I in the rear. He never said a word to me, and by that time, I had already spoken out very frequently about the president's brain missing. Don't you think he was said, Cyril, um, please know, you know, the brain was buried, and it's embarrassing to the right. family and our children and grandchildren. 
to talk about you know my brother's brain and so on. No such word was ever uttered. It, there's no basis at all, at all. There's no record of any kind that indicates the president's brain was taken. In fact, it wasn't taken because there's a memorandum in April of 1965 which lists everything that was there in the archives, and then they did an inventory a year and a half later in October of 66. When I went in 72, as I told you, the first non-government-sponsored Friends of Pathologists Given Access, there I was holding those two documents in one hand, uh, uh, 65, and the other hand, the 66, with the specimens in front of me, and lo and behold, the large tin box that contained the brain with formula was no longer listed in 1966. Mm-hmm. In that one-and-a-half-year interval, it went missing, along with a couple of other photographs and x-rays. That is the story of JFK. Wow. And we could spend a whole night talking about that alone. We could spend a whole night talking about every one of these cases. But I do want to bring up one other point with the JFK assassination, because not only did you consult on Oliver Stone's film, JFK, but you're one of the first people, aren't you, to uh, to uh, examine the Zapruder film? Yes. Um, Dr. Josiah Thompson, known uh, as the nickname Tink, um, uh, called me. I did not know him at that time. He was a consultant for Life magazine. Uh, he was a professor at Haverford College in Pennsylvania. He called me and asked me if I would go to Life Magazine headquarters to study the Zapruder film with him. I eagerly accepted, and we went there. And in December 1966, I had the opportunity to study the Zapruder film. Let me explain to people very quickly. Abraham Zapruder, a woman's clothing merchant, went to Dilly Plaza that day. He stood on a parapet. Um, uh, his secretary braced his leg, this elderly gentleman, while he took pictures with his 8mm camera. So the cars turned, came down Main Street, turned uh, right onto Houston, and then left and downhill onto Elm Street. And he started his camera. The camera was tested by the FBI in Eastman Kodak, and it was determined that 18.3 frames of the film moved through that camera per second. Uh, there's not a word you can utter, a thought you can entertain, a movement you can make 18 times in one second. You can study the shooting of President John Kennedy, the wounded John at one eighteenth second intervals, they took each little eight millimeter frame, blew it up into an eleven by fifteen inch picture, laid them out on X-ray view boxes, and you move around from picture to picture. You're moving one eighteenth second in time, and you're studying the assassination. That was a magnif- magnificent opportunity, yeah. uh, and I've I've continued to work with uh, Ting Thompson, who has written some excellent books on this. Let's talk about Jean Benet Ramsey for a minute. You you were called in to uh, take a look at this case as well, and this is one that still, um, you know, bothers a lot of people, and probably with good reason, Doctor Wecht. Absolutely, with good reason. Uh, I'll tell you, I my family uh, we took our usual Christmas New Year's holiday with the kids. I came back to my office, and I remember it was January second, January third. I get a call from the National Enquirer asking me if I would look at a case for them. And I said, sure. So they send me these pictures, and I'm looking at them. I remember, you know, when when you're down in the islands, you don't get the New York Times every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remember something vaguely about a little girl being killed or so on. I'm looking at the pictures, and for a moment, gee, this looks like a midget. And I'm looking at these pictures, this beautiful, beautiful little girl dressed up by her mother, yep. some fantastic costumes, one of which 
would would make a showgirl in in Las Vegas, green with envy. Hair and um, makeup, yeah, uh, hair and makeup. I, 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 unbelievable. So in any event, then I they sent me the autopsy report, and then I began to study it and so on. And um, <clears throat> I continued my studies in many different ways, and then I wrote a book with Charles Bosworth, uh, Who Killed John Benet Ramsey, uh, and it's available. Uh, I you know, recommend people who are interested in that case. It's just a paperback. It's not expensive. But it's the second edition. It contains the autopsy report in every detail completely, and the judge's ruling on some preliminary matters. Um, the case uh, was badly handled from the very beginning. Instead of calling in homicide detectors from Colorado State or homicide detectors from Denver or FBI, it was handled by the local police. They had had one homicide that year, one homicide the year before in Boulder County. Uh, when they, uh, they, the ineptitude was unbelievable. And then you had Alex Hunter, the district attorney. His plea bargain rate was 98 to 99%. You know, I'm not prosecutorially biased at all, and I'm all for, uh, you know, dealing with people in a fair way, but 98, 99% plea bargaining. Yeah. That kind of tells you that he wasn't much of a prosecution. The case itself, uh, uh, you know, smells from high heaven. Uh, instead of uh, Patsy Ramsey, well, let me go back. Patsy Ramsey and her family visited friends on Christmas Day. They came home, and then the story that they tell is they went to sleep right away, and in the morning when she got up to make breakfast before they left for their holiday vacation, she saw this uh, piece of paper uh, leaning against the step, and it said uh, it, it was a ransom note. And so uh, she goes up to the little girl's bedroom, and not, she's not there, uh, and uh, goes uh, to her brother's room, Burke, uh, three years older, next door. He, she's not there. So she calls the cops right away. Cops come. They search the house. They do not find the little girl. It's uh, 630 in the morning. Um, in the meantime, uh, John Ramsey invites his then best friend, another multimillionaire businessman, Fleet White, who was soon to become his worst enemy, uh, who later took hot full-page ads, essentially accusing John Ramsey of being responsible for his <coughs> daughter's death. In any event, uh, Ramsey invites Fleet White and his wife and uh, uh, Ramsey's minister and his wife to come over to the house. Uh, and about 1 o'clock, seven hours later, John Ramsey says to Fleet White, gee, let's go look again. Let's go look again. Mm-hmm. And he takes them down in the basement, and there's a room that the cops looking for the body of this little girl never even knew existed. They did not even know the room was there. A maid who worked in that house for a year did not know for several months that there was such a room. And and again, I repeat, the cops are looking for a body. Right. This is in the 5,000-room hotel in Beijing or Moscow. <laughs> right. It's a house. It's a big house. Uh, and they didn't even know the room was there. So uh, according to Fleet White, uh, uh, John Ramsey turns the switch on, and before the eyes could adjust to the to 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 the to the light, uh, Ramsey's exclaiming, "Oh my God!" There she goes, and there was the little girl covered by a blanket. Uh, so uh, then uh, they finally get around to calling the coroner, who doesn't get there um, for <clears throat> several hours. Um, in fact, they didn't get there until eight o'clock that evening, and then the autopsy was done. Um, the autopsy revealed some interesting findings, which uh, other people simply had not put together. And to me, they clear, they draw a clear picture. There was no uh, evidence of a brutal sexual assault. 
there was no there were no lacerations or or external injuries to the vulva or the vagina or the pelvic region. What there was was under the microscope chronic inflammation of the vaginal mucosa, which means something forty eight seventy two hours or, or more chronic inflammation the 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 delicate lining the mucosa of the vagina at the seven o'clock position. There was focal superficial erosion, 7 o'clock position. Picture um, a woman going to the gynecologist for examination. Not to be crude, uh, she's on the exam table, and the right-handed gynecologist is performing gynecological examination using the forefinger to see if he feels any lesions, evidence of a tumor or whatever. Um, 7 o'clock position, and then under microscope, uh, using a blue light, uh, birefringent material is seen. The most universal source of birefringent material in all our households, not the only one, but the most universal source is talcum powder. So you get the picture here. Uh, I'll, I'll draw it for you. Please. Patsy Ramsey had four, stage four ovarian cancer. She was out of the sex business. Surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy. The little girl, in my opinion, was a surrogate for her mother. It was a game that the father played oh, with wow. the little girl. Uh, that's what I believe happened. Uh, there was no intent to harm the girl. I'm not ex- exculpating him at all. Um, but obviously, it's a homicide. But the point I'm making is it wasn't first-degree murder. Nothing planned to kill the little girl. Right. Uh, the rope the rope around the neck, uh, interestingly, was uh, <laughs> under, was over a, the, the thick collar. The collar was brought up around the neck to make sure that the rope never touched the skin of the neck. And then the rope continued down to the right wrist, again, overlying his sleeve, pulled down to make sure that the rope never touched his skin, not to leave any telltale marks. And then uh, the little girl died. Um, she had an eight-and-a-half-inch fracture of the head, but that is not what killed her. Uh, she had only seven cc's of blood in that cranial vault. But when somebody smashes your head or mine, anybody's head, uh, with a uh, producing a fracture like that, you're not going to die right away. The bleeding is going to occur, stop the oral hemorrhage, and then you're going to die from the accumulation of blood. Seven cc's is one and a half teaspoons. That was just from the release of uh, the damaged small vessels. Uh, she was already dead or dying when that blow was inflicted and <clears throat> to cover it up and make it seem that it was that kind of a brutal murder. And then we have the ransom note. Um, we represent a small foreign faction, and the ransom demand was $118,000. You like that? Is that a nice rhyme number? <laughs> Awfully 000. specific, that, yeah. Yeah, that's the bonus amount that John Ramsey got from his company the year before, $118,000. And then this this pervert, this uh, so-called uh, outside intruder, which the family has conjured up, outside intruder, who was able to get into the house without awakening anybody, knew where the little girl's bedroom was, knew about our back set of stairs, lived in the basement to this room, which I told you about, was so obscure that the cops even missed it. Uh, he did all of that, and then he decided, you know, I've had my pleasure sexually uh, here. I'm going to make a dollar out of this and make it a financial, uh, wonderful evening also. Uh, oh, Dan, I forgot to bring pen and paper. He goes around the house in the middle of the night, total darkness. He finds pen and paper, starts writing a ransom note. He doesn't like the first note. He crumbles it and throws it to the ground. And then he proceeds to write the note that I just referred to. We represent a small foreign faction uh, and asking for $118,000. And then he left the house without awakening anybody. 
you made one mistake. One mistake. You know what the mistake was, A.V.? What? This is the other question I lost to her a lot of answers. One mistake. He left the body of John Binet, a 45-pound body. Mm-hmm. You just did everything. You wrote, you wrote the ransom note, take the 45-pound body with you. You drop it in the back of your car, throw it into the woods, down a sewer, whatever. He, he leaves the body after writing the ransom note. You like that? That is the John Benet Ramsey case. They'll find an outside intruder when I have hair. I, I'm essentially uh, <laughs> uh, without hair. When I have hair, my own, that grows down to my waist, like Troy Palomalo with the Pittsburgh Steelers used to have, that is when the outside intruder will have been found. Um, we're going to talk about a couple other cases, too, but I want to just ask you, um, you know, when you study this material and you consider the circumstances of the case and as you just described them to us very in in a, in a great deal of detail does it does it does it put a burden on your shoulders do you feel a weight from that yes i do uh, and you can see jamie i speak uh, with uh, passion yes um, and it's not feigned it's not forced and my god how many times i've spoken about this it just comes to me my my anger yeah. My 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 emotional intellectual distress as a human being, as a doctor, as a forensic pathologist, as a medical legal person is so great that it never never goes away. When I talk about JFK and RFK and uh, John Bonet and other cases, because when I think about the way justice was suppressed, uh, justice was perverted. Um, uh, it, it's, it's sickening. It's absolutely it disgusting. It is. Um, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this one, but I do want to mention the Delbert Ward case um, for, for a couple for a couple <laughs> reasons. I saw the documentary uh, "My Brother's Keeper," which I recommend to wonderful, anyone. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful, fantastic piece of of, of work. Um, but also, that all occurred in a town called Munsville, New York, which is adjacent to a town called Oneida, New York, where I owned radio stations for several oh. years. So I'm very familiar with the area and was very familiar with the story. In fact, my radio stations just prior to me owning them covered the whole story. Um, but that is a fascinating case. What was your involvement with, with that? Yes, I was contacted by <clears throat> the attorneys and I, uh, uh, I went up there and examined everything. Delbert Ward was one of four brothers. Um, uh, I think, uh, and, they were five one, five two, small guys. Yeah. They lived in a small shack, no running water, no electricity. Left to them with thirty head of cattle by their parents, and they would go in each morning uh, inside an old jalopy, two on the running board, uh, and to get a cup of coffee and go back. Uh, and uh, one day, uh, one of the Ward brothers dies, uh, and um, for some reason or another, the local medical examiner called it asphyxiation, a mercy killing. Uh, and uh, I showed uh, that it was not so, and I went up there, and I testified. Um, you know, it was marvelous the way the townsfolk came out in yeah. support of these guys. They raised a little bit of money and so on. I don't even think I charged in that case, other uh, than maybe some basic expenses. Um, and it is depicted beautifully in that wonderful documentary that you referred to, My Brother's Keeper. I recommend people should see this. I thank you so much for bringing it up because people don't know about this case. It did not get the kind of coverage that it should have. But that is the story of Delbert Ward. 
an interesting thing, uh, background. You may know something about it. So you say you're up there. I came to learn that a state trooper had his eye on that property. Yes. And, um, yes. <laughs> and uh, he uh, kind of uh, influenced the medical examiner on that call. There was no basis for it at all. It was a it was a death. There was no mercy killing involved. Yeah. It was a natural death. One of them became sick. Yeah, these four brothers, uh, none of them were married, virtually illiterate, yes. all four of them, lived together, yes. as you said, in, in, in unbelievable yes. conditions, but that was their life. And, uh, Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to talk to somebody who's familiar with that case. Let's talk a little bit about, um, and this is because my chat room is egging me on with this one, Kurt Cobain. Um, you know, the official account of Kurt Cobain <laughs> was that he was doing drugs and he shot himself with a shotgun, right? Isn't that the official yeah, story? Yeah, Exactly. And Kurt Cobain uh, went Nirvana, grunge music, yep. whatever it was called. Yeah. So I got contacted by uh, a young gentleman named Ben Stadler. They were putting together this documentary, uh, which, by the way, is an excellent documentary, um, um, Soaked in Bleach. I've seen that one, too. I it is fa- yeah, I've seen it, too. Uh, it's yeah. fabulous. Yes. Yeah, it, it, I recommend people see that. So uh, here's the story that Kurt Cobain, uh, he was uh, in an apartment above the garage, which is separate from the house, and that uh, he uh, you, you got that he took drugs and he shot himself. So here he had enough heroin in him uh, to have killed four different people if it had broken down into four separate components. Wow. He had a small kit, a beautiful brown kit, in which he had his syringe and his needle, a tourniquet. Uh, some drugs, a Band-Aid, uh, a cleansing um, uh, piece to wipe the skin. And so here is a story that he shot himself up with that kind, that dose, and then he cleaned off the needle, detached it from the syringe, cleaned out the syringe, put them all back in neatly into this brown case, and then he took a shotgun and shot himself. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> Heroin injected goes to the brain in a matter of seconds. Many of our drug deaths, we find people with the needle still injected in them. Uh, the tourniquet still on their arm with a needle possibly lying close to them like that. You're in heaven. You're in Iran. You don't, you don't go and shoot. And the position of the gun, which I get into detail uh, in that documentary, uh, didn't fit in either. Kurt Cobain, I believe, was murdered. I do not believe it was a suicide. It was never, never properly investigated. It was handled immediately by the local cops as a suicide. No study was done. No investigation of the scene or footprints, fingerprints, physical evidence, hair trace evidence, nothing like that. And uh, that's the way it was wrapped up. And incredible. There was a private investigator which was featured in that documentary that yes. talks a lot about the yes. a lot of the evidence pointing to his wife uh, Courtney Love. Yes. Um, do you have an opinion? Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, he did a great job. That private investigator, a do wonderful you, job. Do you have an and opinion on Courtney Love in that case? Well, um, I've only been told that uh, she's one tough cookie. I do know that the Kurt Cobain was in the process of getting a divorce. Yeah. They had millions of dollars and so on, and that uh, the relationship was strained, to put it mildly. Uh, and if the divorce went through, uh, she would have been screwed out of millions of dollars. Um, I, I, it's not that I'm hesitant about accusing her. I, I, you know, I think that it's most likely that it was engineered by her. Uh, I don't 
think that she herself is the one who killed him, uh, but it could easily have been accomplished. But I just don't know enough, you know, to, to say that. I, 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 that's the background information. But I do believe that it was a murder and by no means a suicide. How did O.J. Simpson get away with what he did? And I'm assuming that's what you think as well. I don't know for sure. Yeah, well, half and half. I think that my my opinion is that and I was consulted in that case and mm-hmm. spent uh, time. Lee Bailey came to my house. I spent a day and a half, two days going over everything with me and so on. I did not testify because by that time I was speaking out uh, so frequently on national television. And then they had my good friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Bodden, excellent friends with apologists, testifying. So um, uh, I did not testify, but I studied the case and spent a lot of time on it. Um, I do believe that O.J. was there with the second person. Okay. I believe the second person was his son, Jason. There's no way, in my opinion, that those two people, uh, his wife um, <clears throat> and uh, Ron Goldman, who uh, came there fortuitously, unexpectedly, bringing her glasses, which had been uh, right. uh, interestingly left at the restaurant, and he was returning them after having cleaned up and so on. I'll leave that to everybody else's imagination. Uh, in any event, um, 17 wounds in one person, 22 others, uh, other wounds uh, in, the, in the other person. When you cut the carotid artery in the jugular vein in someone's neck, blood spurts several feet, several feet. Wow. Um, where is all the blood? They went to Jose's house, uh, you know, pretty darn soon afterwards. Mm-hmm. Every sewer, every sewer, sink, bathtub, and toilet, and shower was carefully examined. And no blood was found. They had one drop of blood on a sink. It was shown to have been planted. It contained an anticoagulant, which is in blood tubes when blood is drawn by your doctor at his office, oh, wow. but not in blood from your body. That was the only blood that was found. Where did, where did all the clothing go? Where did the instrumentality go? Where did all the blood go? You don't get rid of blood. You've cut yourself, I'm sure, like I have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes playing ball or something. Cut myself, for example, uh, by the ocean, even. Went to the ocean, and you come out, and the damn blood is still there. <laughs> you got to take sand and wipe it off. Uh, so blood does not. And the, the tests for blood are extremely sensitive, extremely sensitive. So when I say that no blood was found, that means no blood was there. Uh, so that's the OJ case. I do believe that there was a second person. I think it got out of hand. Jason was known to have a temper, and uh, his stepmother had disappointed him. She was supposed to have gone to his restaurant that night where he worked, and uh, she went to another restaurant, and I think he was pissed off. He went to, in fact, they had him signing out that day from the work, and that's never been accounted for. So I think that, you know, that's what happened, and and O.J. bit the bullet as as a father. Um, and he wasn't going to get out of it. Yeah. And so it didn't make a hell of a difference. Then the trial was interesting, too. How did he come to be acquitted? That's interesting. Uh, I mean, we, most, that was one of the first that we all watched play out on television. Yes. The most brilliant cross-examination that any law student could ever study is that performed by Ethel Billy on Mark Furman. Question after question after question. And finally leading up to, and so Detective Furman, as you sit here today on the witness stand under oath, are you saying to his honor, Judge Ito, 
and the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, nine of whom were African-Americans, uh, that you have never used the N-word. Mm-hmm. Well, it was documented in his record that he used it a couple of times and had been disciplined for it. You had Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden, the prosecution attorneys, uh, arrogantly uh, went ahead and used him as a star witness. Yep. They didn't have to do that. And uh, in my opinion, the jury said, screw you, uh, <laughs> the prosecution. You're going to give us this uh, um, racist, this anti-black person as a major witness, and uh, you want us to go along with it? And that's how that's what led to uh, the acquittal. And then, of course, in the civil case, uh, where the evidentiary burden lies high, right. but Mark Furman, Mark Furman was not used in the civil case, and he, they got that $33 million verdict. I don't know how much of it they ever collected. Um, uh, so that's the story. We have, the OJ we have just a couple of minutes left with you, but I want to emphasize the fact that in the book, you go through dozens of these cases, and they're all cases that people would recognize the names of, like Jeffrey Epstein is one of them. Um, you know, we're talking about the men, the Menendez brothers, um, you yes, know, Scott and Lacey Peterson. These are all cases I would love to talk about tonight. We just Ron, Ron Brown and Vincent yeah. Foster and Waco Brian Civilian and Gene Harris. Uh, and uh, uh, they have an entire hour, cardiac diet uh, doctor and Phil Spector. Uh, oh. oh, my. Uh, oh, yes. They're all so there. many. And, uh, and in the time we have left, I want to touch on... Two, one and one and a half, really. The Casey, <laughs> Kay- the Casey Kaylee Anthony case, that's another one that just breaks yeah. my heart. What's your opinion yes. of that case? What did you find when you looked at that? I was initially consulted, spent time with the defense attorney, gave him my thoughts. He did not like them, and I wound up then dropping out of the case. And I think that that is the most absurd, unjust verdict that I can ever think of, that I have ever experienced in all my years. <clears throat> have exonerated her. Yeah. I think the prosecution um, uh, went too far in ca- ca- charging her with first-degree murder. Mm-hmm. They should have you know, gone after manslaughter and so on. I think the jury balked at coming in with first-degree murder and maybe executing the, her. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's unbelievable. My recollection is that she, the mother, Kaylee, um, um, Kaylee testified, testified yeah. under oath with her father sitting in the yep. courtroom, yep. that the little girl had drowned in their swimming pool, and that her father went and buried the body of the little girl, remember, who was found some time right. later. Can you believe that? Where, uh, where did that jury come from? A jury from hell. Yeah. Yeah, that's an amazingly sad case. Now, the last one I'm going to ask you about here is a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I know you you looked at this. But we talk about aliens on this program every once in a while, <laughs> and you, you took a look at the controversial alien autopsy. What, yeah. Did did you really take a look at that? Yeah, well, I looked at the uh, television film, yes. Mm-hmm. I think it was Fox News invited me. I went down to look at it. And, you know, and my comment was that it's unlike anybody that I've ever seen. Uh-huh. Uh, some people have made fun of me uh, for not immediately saying it's an alien. Uh, let me let me say that the, they, they went to the top <clears throat> Hollywood makeup artists, and uh, and, and they, they were puzzled, too. Um, I, it came to be shown to be a, a, a farce, uh, but... Uh, uh, you know, it was very cleverly ch- done, yeah. and I, I, I said, I said what, what I think was was appropriate. It, it's 
said, I'm like anybody that I have ever seen. What the hell more can I say? Right, uh, interestingly, exactly. look this up, by the way, since you're in the case. There's a statement that came out from a uh, recently retired top-level <clears throat> Israeli general scientist who claims that uh, American authorities and others are aware <clears throat> of uh, aliens, and uh, there may there has been even some possible meetings or so on. Yeah, but it's not. I I, I don't know. I, I I the only thing I do say is when people dismiss these things in one brief second is that it's hard to believe with billions of galaxies, right. billions of galaxies, that there's not some other form of life out there. So you know to be so dismissive right. to think that no other kind of life. Uh, is possibly extant uh, in any one of those galaxies. I mean, you consider the number of light years that it takes to get from one to the other. No, you and I, we won't be around. Who knows? (laughs) And we don't dismiss that on this program. We talk to a lot of folks who do this kind of work and research these ideas, and we take it all very seriously. Um, I'm going to ask for your forgiveness just to keep you for just two two minutes longer, but I want your opinion on something. Something I read in the book... um, you you talk about in early in the book you talk about uh um the terrorist attacks of 9/11 and how Americans at that point uh foolishly in some cases gave up uh freedoms for security and there's a famous quote by Ben Franklin talking about those who do that deserve <laughs> neither um given what we're seeing happening today do you have a different opinion about that now um given the fact that we're looking at a what not not a terrorist calamity, but a health, a public health calamity. Well, there was a public health calamity, and I was appointed to a special committee to study the after effects, and I played a role in expanding what had originally been put together, whereby a lot of the first responders would have been denied benefits That's right. for problems that they developed. I'm very proud of that. I really I played a significant role um, in disputing the thoughts that came from some local authorities. So uh, I, I think that there were health benefits, and uh, these are things that needed to be played out, recognized, analyzed, and properly compensated for. But the but the idea of giving up uh, freedoms for security, I mean, we see, yeah, yeah. You know, we're, we're kind of doing that on <laughs> yeah. steroids right yeah. now. Hopefully it's, it's temporary. Patrick, Patrick, Patrick Henry says, I think it's Patrick Henry, look it up. The person uh, who... Um, we give up uh, uh, liberty for safety. Yeah, deserves uh, neither. Deserves right? neither. That's right. That's yeah. right. My, fi- <laughs> my final question, uh, Doctor Wecht, is: uh, You also say in the book that you wrote this for your children and your grandchildren and your close friends. You wanted them yeah. to know your story. Uh, do you think you you accomplished that goal uh, with what you produced? Yeah. Well, I, I think so. And with people like you who are giving me the opportunity to talk and promote the book. People truly are enjoying the book, I must say. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very pleased, somewhat pleasantly surprised, the comments that I'm getting from all kinds of people. You know, I gave, obviously, the book to each of my four children, and, and then I also gave one to each of my 11 grandchildren, and in each of these, these books of the grandchildren, I wrote in to, you know, their name, and I said, you know, to so-and-so, and I said, please share this book with your grandchildren someday. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's terrific. Um, 
This has been a fabulous show. Before I let you go, where can people buy the book if they want to read it? Because it's a fan. Your book, yeah. your book, Dr. Wett, could be a multi-season television show all by itself. Well, I, I thank you, and we're kind of looking into that. People can buy the book, I think, easiest from Amazon, as well as uh, there are many major bookstores, Walmart and Barnes & Noble uh, and so on, uh, directly from the publisher McFarland in North Carolina. What I've been told uh, by many people is, the easiest way is to just do it on Amazon. Yeah. Well, um, again, this has been a fantastic discussion. I really, I, I know you don't release a book every, you know, six months or so, but I hope you do have an opportunity to come back on the show because it's been, it's been yeah, fabulous. You've been, you've been a magnificent host. And I must say this quite seriously, that you've been the most knowledgeable uh, uh, person that I've, that I've been interviewed by in terms of the cases uh, that you know about, the familiarity that you have. So it's been a real pleasure staying up at this, this <laughs> ungodly hour for me. Uh, I thank you so much for your courtesy, and it's been a great pleasure sharing this hour and a half with you. Thank you so much. Thank you as well. And coming from you, uh, Dr. Buck, that means a lot. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.